Howdy neighbors, Ron Hayes with you today with another Ag Perspectives podcast. And today, well, we really are looking forward to visiting with Don Close, who's now with Terrain. But 20 years ago, he was in charge of risk management for Aztec Feeders, one of the larger feedlot organizations in North America. He was based in the Texas Panhandle, and he had the deal back on December 23rd, 2003, and following with a cow that stole Christmas. It changed a lot of things in the beef cattle business in our country and really around the world as well. We're back to talk with Don Close about the cow that stole Christmas and all the fallout that followed in just a few moments. National Livestock is dedicated to being your first choice for cattle marketing, risk management, order buying services, and cattle financing. We specialize in providing first-class service to those in the cattle business. And now we're proud to tell you that Dakota Moss with Livestock Risk Services has joined the National Livestock family, offering tremendous expertise when it comes to LRP contracts. You can trust National because all the experts are in one place. Learn more by going to nationallivestock.com. Our conversation today is with Don Close. Don, you were working 20 years ago in the cattle business, in the feedlot, in the Texas panhandle, when what, uh, as we look back, a ginormous black swan swooped in and hit the cattle industry, uh, really blindsided us. As you think about uh, December 23rd, 2003, what, what do you remember? What, what are some of your early thoughts? So my first, my first recollection, Ron, is that... Uh, I was I was out at Taos and had spent the day skiing, just came off the mountain and was uh, walking across the parking lot. And my phone rings, and a friend of mine uh, said, "There's going to be a press conference in Washington in about 20 minutes," and said, "Your life is never going to be the same." And holy smokes, was he correct on that one? Um, it was. It was from a risk management perspective. It was a living nightmare. Uh, just the the uncertainty of what to do. The initial freefall in the market. Um, we and then you know the other the other recollection I I have is that uh, USDA was having that uh, daily press conference at three o'clock every afternoon. And and they would give us uh, any any updates they had, but uh, you know initially it was just trying. It was a, the the biggest challenge was to uh, with the futures market lock limit down there for what three days or whatever it was three. I think it was three days. Um, and we had uh, we had huge huge volumes of of option positions on that uh, were were very low price put put strategy in place for risk management at that particular time. And that first morning I had uh, basically worthless options that were worth $7 and 50 cents a hundred and, and trying to liquidate those positions. And even though the price was there, couldn't get any takers. Uh, we couldn't move cattle. It, it was just one of those, you didn't know what to do. And now tell tell the audience, though, who were you working with at that particular time? So at that particular time, I was uh, VP of risk management for Aztec Cattle Company out of Burford, Texas. And uh, at that time, 
Aztec was the fifth largest feeding entity in the U.S., and mm. I think they had the Max had a total of four feed yards. You mentioned the futures. You obviously were uh, not only dealing on the future side, but you, I'm sure that you had some communication with some of the buyers, some of these uh, yes. these packers. I mean, what 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 were they? What were the discussions at that time? Well, we, you know, I think I think even take a step further back that uh, it, it, Canada had their initial outbreak of BSE in May of of 2003, so we had cut off all of the importation of live cattle from Canada, we were still, we, we, we treated Canada, Canada horribly, horribly bad through that situation. We wouldn't take the live cattle, but we were buying the beef, but we were buying their, the Canadian beef at such a tremendous discount that uh, caused all kinds of uh, problems for them. So because of we did not have the Canadian cattle in our fed slaughter mix. We were actually, we had a very strong market for the time all, all summer and fall, you know, cattle were making really good money. Um, but because of that, we were over killing our available supply. We had killed the grade out of the cattle. So grading percentages were going down. Um, and then once, once that BSC occurrence happened, you know, not only the, as we've already said, the, the just not knowing what to do, but compounding that was the holiday period where so many people were, had, had already left Washington or, or left their jobs for the holiday. So you couldn't, you couldn't get a hold of people you needed. People were trying to get back to their offices to handle it. Uh, we we just sat there and, and and basically didn't. I mean, we were still moving moving uh, cattle, but slaughter rate slowed, so we couldn't we couldn't get rid of everything that needed to move. So we, we just immediately were making the transition from a, a, a cattle supply that was actually over harvested to to then we couldn't get where cattle were being backlogged, and then the building tonnage the, the classic problem of not moving enough cattle mm -hmm. so so we were we were way we were way current uh as we came into this uh, december 23rd announcement yes and then very quickly uh after christmas when christmas and new year's all this thing really started to uh, just start to pile up we we just rolled over overnight mm -hmm. uh the the other thing you know we had we had worked for years and at that point in time, exports accounted for roughly 10% of U.S. beef production. Uh, with our with foreign away, our largest customer at that time was Japan. And so, overnight, our exports went from 10% of production to zero, or essentially zero. And so we had that additional tonnage of product on the domestic market that only uh, further compounded. Uh, the the erosion in the beef market. Uh, we went months there with, you know, constant negotiations, principally with Japan, but trying to get the market reopened. Uh, that went on for about a year, mm -hmm. and then we we initially packers were having to, you know, 
that we were aging all the cattle. We were employing, we're implementing the 30 month rule. So there was, there were big fights over whether we were using bone ossification for age determination, or we could use dentition. And then we, there were huge, huge fights over, over there. And we even had cases where we had verified age on the cattle, but because of a grader on a plant floor, aging that put in uh, 30 months and over either from dentition or ossification. Uh, we had cases where documentation didn't matter. Um, that was a problem. Uh, massive discounts on, on the cattle that were called 30 and over. So that was, that was number one. And then number two, we went in you know, immediately, uh, no, basically all of the head meat and, and, you know, couldn't be used and, and the packers were having to go in and remove all of that spinal cord from the split carcasses. So we had the, the learning curve with that. Um, we, we initially were started once a year was over with, and we started to send some product back to Japan, uh, say the 30 month rule again, but the, uh, had to be boneless product. Uh, then, then as trade slowly, slowly started to open up, um, boy, if you, you know, inspections, every country was doing detailed inspections. And if they would, uh, find any piece of spinal cord material in that box, then the whole, the whole load was rejected. Mm -hmm. And then you were looking at destruction of that load or, you know, returning it. It just, the whole situation uh, fraught with complications. The uh, I know that what the early exports, I guess the first uh, company uh, countries we really uh, were able to do any significant business with were our, were our neighbors, so what Canada and Mexico, yes. right? Yes, yeah. That that trade, uh, I don't know that I'd go so far as to say it it normalized. But uh, yeah, we it was it was a reasonable amount of time that we were. You know, back to doing some business with Mexico, uh, as I've already talked about earlier, uh, our trade trade with uh, with Canada was just horrible. Um, that Canada Canada was so desperately out of position. So, besides no live cattle trade, they were selling that box beef at at a tremendous discount. Uh, and it would work its way into the U.S. market. And once it once it got to retail, you know, it was it was selling at, at, at regular price. So that that price disparity in the Canadian product, and and then say, yeah, the, the North American trade at least volume was flowing. I don't know, the prices were just were were normalized, but trade volumes normalized fairly quickly there. I know that uh, the um, cow calf and stocker operators they you know normally they don't trade cattle over the the holidays anyway they they were they were done when all this announced so they they didn't really see what was going to happen to their their cattle they they brought to market until uh, the uh, the first uh, first full week of January um, uh, you know th- obviously you were having some conversations with some of those kind of guys that were going to be sending cattle to uh, to feedlots. Uh, lot, I know there was a lot of fear and unknown on that side of the cattle, cattle trade as well. 
there was, and and you bring a great a great point that, you know, and and I even initially say it was probably a benefit for that 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 seasonal trade had basically completed at least as one thing, one one less moving part uh, initially. But you know, I remember I'm trying to think back, but trade obviously first of the year trade was really really slow, but the real compounding on the on the calves that I recall from that, it, it wasn't so much early initially in January, February, but when it really compounded on the feeder side was when we started seeing all that wheat cattle movement, um, March and April, that's, that's when the real pressure came on, on the feeder complex. Yeah, obviously you were working for a major feedlot operation. Um, you know, how, how much, how much of a red ink bath did all of our feedlots take those first several months of this thing? Oh, I don't, you know, (laughs) I think it's true that, uh, that we, we don't have the ability to remember pain. Um, I'm going to, you know, I clear, I'm going to, I'm going to readily say, we immediately went to triple digit losses on those cattle. I, it was big. <laughs> I don't. I don't remember. I'd have to go back and look at the prices. <laughs> uh, I, you know, uh, as you as you look at this thing, you know, as we we we've got the, obviously the ability to look back twenty years now and how things were handled. Uh, it was Ag Secretary Ann Veneman that was making these yeah. announcements and some of her key players uh, that were in her administration on a daily basis, as you mentioned. How do you think, you know, the government and, for that matter, uh, the trade uh, NCBA, how, how did we respond? Did we, did we do a pretty good job, you think, overall? You know, with hindsight, I, th- I think we did. And, and I'm not even going to take credit for this. I, I caught an interview with uh, – Colin Woodall uh, recently, and he, and he was referencing this, and he said, you know, while well, we most certainly don't want to go back to that again, but that there were actually positives that came out of it that how we learned how to handle these black swan events, and and I I think he I think there's a lot of merit to that. Um, I will give all kinds of of credit to NCBA just how responsive they were with with uh, dealing with the media i remember uh talking with with them and you know the number of interviews and and the placements of interviews they were getting on the today show and the the evening news programs and every opportunity they had to explain to consumers that beef was still safe that all the all the safety protocols that were in place that would and then we when we found that it wasn't a u.s cow it was a canadian cow that was was in washington state i i think ncba did uh handled that situation incredibly well i think usda handled it uh i give credit to usda that they they truly uh immediately uh, went to work on trying to stabilize the situation. Um, you know, they, and again, they were, they were doing everything we could do. They could do to, uh, to get the, the latest news to the industry. And with, they were having a press conference every day at three o'clock. And certainly that, that first week or two, uh, it was filled with news, and we were just trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to be able to do to get the get, get cattle moving? We've got to get, keep 
keep moving. And uh, they did a good job with that. And then as, as time drug out a month and two months, they were still doing that daily press conference, but there really wasn't any new news. So, so it got to be a real drag to have to get on that press conference every afternoon at three o'clock. And uh, the, the one thing that I think has, has come out of, out of that emergency that is helping us today is one is we've got way we've strengthened our trade agreements so in the event that there there is a food safety issue emerges we can determine okay does trade stay open does trade stop we don't just shut everything off like we did then uh and probably the the biggest piece of that is is how that would apply um, if you take the the African swine fever uh, threat to the U.S. or certainly uh, the U.S. threat with foot and mouth disease, but that we have negotiated to trade on a regionalized ba- basis. So if one one section of the country has an outbreak of any kind, that region can be blocked off in, in really quick order. But for the remainder of the country, we can continue to to move cattle, at least on a on a semi normal uh, platform. That's a huge, huge improvement from where we were back there at, in the early 2000s. Don Close uh, talking with us today about the cow that stole Christmas from 20, uh, 2003, 20 years ago now. Uh, Don, you know, uh, the, you know, when we look back over that, uh, that particular time, uh, you mentioned, you know, exports went to zero. It took, what, literally 10 years to get anywhere close to where we had been before that, that particular day. Uh, absolutely true. And and to think that you know we're we're currently running twelve to thirteen percent of of U.S. beef production is exported. So you know you could you could arguably t- and I'm trying to think now. It's been two or three years ago when we when we actually broke into a new record on uh, percentage of, of exports. That uh, you know I easily it's it took us fifteen years. Uh, mm-hmm. if not 20, uh, to, to get back to where we were and to finally see uh, break into to new territory and, and the support that that uh, additional exports has provided to the market. It's interesting to me that uh, now when we have one of these uh, cases of BSE, and it's, you know, it's not a classic case of BSE, but, but uh, uh, it, it's not even hardly a blip on the market anymore. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> you know, the I think the the two things. One is it's it's not the the atypical BSE cases, uh, and then you take of of all of the panic that was connected with the brain wasting disease and and deer and elk populations in the western states, and and at least from what I hear, though that's that's calmed down from from what it was at one time. Uh, so not only from the animal health and animal uh, welfare side of the equation, but that we have finally got mechanisms in place to reassure that consumer that that, that beef supply is, is safe. 
we can continue to see uh, a respectable flow of product, it's a game changer from where we were back then. Final thoughts, Don. You know, this is um, one of those things that uh, we we were able to get through successfully. Uh, but I know most folks in the cattle industry, uh, they they felt a lot of pain uh, and a lot of uncertainty. I know that that this was it, it was a it was a it was a, a stressful time. If you were in the cattle yeah, business, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that, that, that was the thing that really just kind of always has, uh, has stayed with me, how stressful and how, how crazy it was. And, and you know, I, I, I can talk to a lot of, a lot of our producer friends from that era. They all know where they were at on December 23rd when that, that was, that was announced. As, as I started the story, I can tell you, I can, I can tell you exactly where my footsteps were when that phone rang uh, that, that day. Uh, they, the other, the other takeaway I would have on that, Ron, I, I don't disagree with a word of, of just how uh, destructive that was to the U.S. industry. But then we, we've, as we've talked about, pers- better education, better informed, better, better policies in place to convey information. But in many ways, you think back on it, that was probably. I mean, they, we've had black swan events in the cattle industry since, since as long as both of us have been around. But that was that was really the first event uh, that you that we can categorize as that was a black swan event for the industry, and mm-hmm. and now just the the in in increased frequency that we have those kind of, of market disrupting events take place and, and, and how the market handles them. I guess that is the true definition of a black swan event for sure for our industry, the cow that stole Christmas. Thank you, Don. Don Close with Terrain talking with us about that day 20 years ago, as of the 23rd of December, the cow that stole Christmas. On the Oklahoma Farm Report, I'm Ron Hayes.